Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. What Happens Next offers listeners an in-depth analysis of the most pressing issues of the day. Our experts are given just six minutes to present. This is followed by a question and answer period for deeper engagement. I think you will find this discussion to be both informative and provocative. This program is moderated to be politically neutral. Our speakers will give their opinions, and then we encourage you to make up your own mind. This week's topics include Thomas Edison, the Me Too movement, Bonfire of the Vanities, and consumer behavior. This week, I will be joined by two co-hosts, Patrick Allett and Todd Benson. I am very happy to share the work and the glory. Our first host, Patrick Allett, you've met twice before on What Happens Next. Patrick is an Emory historian who previously spoke about the 19th century London cholera epidemic and subsequently about the continuing relevance of George Orwell's writings. Patrick will moderate our first two speakers. Our first presenter today is Ernie Freeberg, who is a historian at the University of Tennessee at Knoxville. He is the author of The Age of Edison, Electric Light, and the Invention of Modern America. Ernie will discuss the innovation process in the 19th century. Our second speaker is Christine Rosen, who is a senior writer at Commentary Magazine, senior editor at the New Atlantis, and a fellow at the Institute for Advanced Studies and Culture at the University of Virginia. Christine will discuss the mentoring process and problems that the Me Too movement will cause for working women because men are afraid of interacting with their female colleagues. What happens next then goes in a completely different direction. We will then discuss Tom Wolfe's novel, Bonfire of the Vanities, which was published 34 years ago. We have two speakers who examine various aspects of the novel and film. Our first speaker on Bonfire is my good friend and teacher, David Grazian, who is a professor of sociology at the University of Pennsylvania. One of the great aspects of modern sociology is its use of literature to understand the complexities of life. Bonfire offers wonderful insights into the 1980s New York City and has continuing relevance today. Our second speaker is Julie Solomon, who is the former Wall Street Journal film critic and the New York Times TV and arts reporter. Julie was given unrestricted access to the making of the film Bonfire of the Vanities that was directed by Brian De Palma and starred Tom Hanks, Melanie Griffith, and Kim Cattrall. Julie wrote a very controversial book about this experience entitled The Devil's Candy, The Anatomy of a Hollywood Fiasco. After our discussion on Bonfire, we will then move to something completely different. Our second co-host, Todd Benson, will lead a discussion about changes in consumer behavior caused by COVID. Todd and I started working together in July 1987 as financial analysts at Salomon Brothers. In fact, the trading floor environment where Todd and I worked was the basis for Sherman McCoy's trading job in Bonfire of the Vanities. While I lasted, at City Solomon for 13 long years, Todd lasted incredibly for 21 dog years. This Kansas City native is now the CEO of Harrington and on the board of several private businesses. Our first speaker in this segment is Michael Duda, who is the managing partner at Bullish, which is an early stage investment firm that includes Peloton, Harry Shave, and Warby Parker. Michael is very optimistic about consumer brands and thinks we are headed into a golden era for brands. Michael will discuss how COVID will change the consumer experience. Our final speaker today is Leslie Geis, who leads a consumer culture insights agency called T-O-B-E-T-D-G that works on brand positioning and opportunities in fashion, beauty, and entertainment. All right, that is the agenda for today's session. Each month since the beginning of COVID, I have discussed the Bureau of Labor Statistics Employment Report. I do this because it has the most informative data on the health of the U.S. economy. This month provided another surprise as employment jumped by 379,000, which was nearly twice as large as the forecast by a survey of Wall Street economists. The big news was in the leisure and hospitality segment, 
which was responsible for 95% of the total hiring for the month in the economy. We've been waiting for it, and with the vaccine rollout in full swing, hotels are starting to rehire. I want to focus you on another important measure of labor underutilization known as U6. This measure includes as underemployed, both unemployed persons as well as part-time workers for economic reasons. The U6 now stands at 11.1%, which is up from 7.0% pre-COVID last February, which is unfortunate but not catastrophic. The employment picture continues to improve, but slowly. This U6 measure is down just 1% from four months ago, and the current rate of improvement would take 16 months to get back to normal. That said, there are two major factors which will determine the pace of employment growth. The first is the vaccine rollout and the public's willingness to re-engage in the world. The second is the stimulus bill, which is negotiated by Congress currently. Included in this bill are increased unemployment benefits. Casey Mulligan, who is a labor economist at the University of Chicago Booth School, will join us two weeks from now, and he will describe how these additional social programs will end up discouraging work. Okay. With that, let's begin today's session with historian Ernie Freeberg from the University of Tennessee to discuss Thomas Edison. Go ahead, Ernie. Thanks very much, Larry. Um, I appreciate the invitation. I've, I've been listening for quite a while and, and uh, glad to be invited back to, to talk about uh, invention in the 19th century and its impact uh, down to today. My focus as a historian is on the late 19th century, and we associate that time with all the growing pains of an industrial revolution, uh, racial and labor conflicts, uh, cities crowded with crime, corruption, and pollution. And all that's so, but as a historian digging into the sources, I also found that people uh, living through this period praised their good fortune for living in the most wonderful time in human history. And the reason for their optimism time and again was the era's incredible technological creativity. It's in this period, especially the later decades of the 19th century, that Americans began to define themselves as a nation of inventors. They had to agree that Europe had a, a higher, more sophisticated culture, had great universities and literature and science, but Americans started to pride themselves on having a practical utilitarian genius. Uh, these new machines that emerged out of this period, many of which are still with us, uh, made some people very rich, but they all also promised to enrich everybody's lives uh, by making life easier and more full and more abundant. And many Americans decided that technological creativity and a fascination with the ingenious machines was a unique expression of American democracy. Invention itself seemed like a democratic act. Around the world, other countries acknowledged America's remarkable inventive genius, and they wondered why. And so they often sent people to investigate. And these are the kinds of answers that they came up with. One was, uh, and really perhaps the most important, was that the United States had adopted a much more liberal and open patent system. It was much less expensive to apply for a patent than in Europe, and the U.S. Patent Office was much more likely to grant a patent for a small incremental improvement on a machine that already existed. America also had a population that, uh, while not deeply educated, had a, a broad access to education, and in the late 19th century, a lively scientific press. So just about anybody who was interested could follow along on, on the latest inventions, uh, reading things like Scientific American uh, and Popular Mechanics Weekly. And Americans also had, uh, by European visitors' standards, an incredible enthusiasm for gadgets and labor-saving devices. 
So there was a market. Uh, some reason, uh, American democratic culture, people seemed eager to spend their, their hard-earned dollars on the latest machine. So all that made America a culture that rewarded inventiveness among people of all classes. And of course, it's Thomas Jefferson who embodied that faith in American ingenuity. But he was only the most visible and the most successful of many thousands who participated in the invention process in these years. He got over a thousand patents over the course of his life, but many thousands of Americans, both men and women, also won patents in these years. In history class, we learned to associate inventions with single heroic inventors. We think of them as geniuses. So we're taught to connect uh, Bell and the telephone and Ford and the motor car, and of course, Edison and the light bulb. We like to imagine a eureka moment when a great mind like Edison creates something new and transformative. And that has remained with us a powerful cultural myth. If asked to name a great invention from the 19th century, or really from any period in history, most Americans would name the light bulb. They put it on the short list of the greatest inventions ever. And we still use all these years later, uh, the lit light bulb as our universal symbol for in inventive genius and of that eureka moment that we think uh, is so important to invention. All this is powerful, but it also simplifies how invention actually works now and certainly how it worked uh, in the 19th century. In the case of electric light, Edison was a latecomer to what was a transatlantic race to solve a series of technical challenges involved with incandescent lighting. Edison drew fundamentally from the insights of his rivals, uh, and many of them in fact claimed that uh, he stole their ideas by entering in late. When the first great exposition of electric light was held in Paris in 1881, Edison was just one of a half dozen inventors who was showing off a brand new working incandescent lighting system. For a brief time, uh, about 10 years, Edison emerged at the head of that competition, both in the marketplace and also winning and or controlling uh, the important patents. But he wasn't, as the textbooks still tell us, uh, the man who gave us electric light. He was just one of many inventors. Edison was partly responsible for this success. The success that Edison enjoyed was partly because he himself invented a new style of invention. At Menlo Park, he created an invention factory backed by the deep pockets of J.P. Morgan and the Vanderbilts. And this allowed his own genius to be amplified by a team of experts that he hired from others. He often scoffed at university academics uh, as being uh, pinheads and, you know, uh, sort of a feat intellectuals, but he knew enough to hire them uh, when he was assembling his team. So he would put the materials together and he promised that what he had created at Menlo Park with all of this capital and with this team uh, was an invention factory that would essentially produce a major breakthrough of some kind uh, every six months and a small invention every two or three weeks. Electric light, which is the focus of my own uh, research on this, following the light bulb's uh, career, uh, was socially invented in another way. If we follow electric light after it left Edison's laboratory and went out into the marketplace, we see that the world of electric light was created by many creative acts by hundreds and thousands of others. Surgeons adapted light to look into the body. Theater artists uh, experimented with electric light in order to set mood. Explorers took the light into caves and into clouds uh, and in their search for the North Pole. Others, too many or to remember, figured out how to use electric light to illuminate Christmas trees and Coney Island, department store windows, Times Square, and baseball games. 
The light allowed factories to stay open longer, and it made possible to ship goods by rail and steamship at, at night much more safely. Uh, so here was the beginning of the 24-7 work world that we have today, the one that both serves uh, us so well and also exhausts us. And it was essential to much of our leisure time, making possible what we now call nightlife. Every aspect of daily life was changed by creative adaptations of this technology in ways that were far more complex than Edison or any one inventor could possibly have anticipated. And in that sense, electric light and the world of electric light was socially invented, even though only a fraction of the inventions actually made it to the patent office. Finally, we remember the late 19th century as an age of great inventions, but it was also a time when invention became constant, became a permanent feature of daily life. Not just the great idea of an occasional genius, but something that we came to expect uh, on a regular basis. So this is the origin of our own relationship to technology and our own assumption that techno technological improvement is a perpetual process. We're often surprised by new inventions, but we take it for granted that amazing new machines are going to arrive on a regular basis and that people in the future are going to benefit from inventions that we can't even imagine at this point. That expectation that, that invention is perpetual, that it's cl uh, the clearest way to see human progress is something that we inherited from 19th century culture. And this points to one final observation about inventiveness. The power of the electric light as an invention was really its malleability. Edison and early pioneers set loose a technology that was rudimentary at the time, but it was a field for enormous creativity and incremental improvement. And we find a parallel today in our own endless creative use of computer technology, a sprawling field of creative destruction that has gone in directions that no inventor could have anticipated. Thanks. Thanks very much indeed, Ernie. That's great. And uh, let me just say to everybody that uh, your time spent reading Ernie's book, The Age of Edison, will be very well spent. I wonder, Ernie, if you could answer first this question. How did Edison evaluate himself and his work? He must have been aware that he was a, a cult figure in his own day. Did he try to concentrate the praise on himself, or did he admit that he was the leader of a group, of a consortium, and that he owed a lot of, uh, he owed a, a literal debt to the fundraisers who'd helped him? Well, let's start with the fundraisers. He was always frustrated that the capitalists uh, did not back him sufficiently, did not trust him. Uh, he spent a lot of time trying to break free and raise enough capital on his own uh, in order to bring his products to market. And sometimes at great risk uh, to his own uh, more limited funds, uh, he would go out on his own. He also cultivated this image of himself as a homespun uh, practical genius. You know, inventors would, people would uh, say, how did you invent so much? Why, why are you so successful? And then he would say, well, it's because I, I eat a lot of pie. Uh, so he'd <laughs> like to sort of deflect this and, and uh, make believe he was just a, a, a common folksy fellow. His team, you know, in spite of the fact that Edison's focus was on himself, uh, his team uh, expressed great admiration and respect for him and did value the fact that he was, in a sense, the, the orchestra leader of their group, that he was the one who drove them uh, to their success. Well, it, the fact that he had a thousand patents does suggest that he was very exceptionally talented. What do you think about the concept of the, the, the solitary towering genius? I think that's a very romantic idea, isn't it, that was popular in the 19th century. You're emphasizing rather this concept of social invention. So how much space is there still left for the individual? Well, I think uh, 
you know, if we're asking about what's going on today, genius is more collective, uh, invention is more collective an effort than ever, uh, re requiring, you know, enormous uh, participation, usually with government funds and, and a, a massive uh, scientific establishment. So I think, I think genius is embedded within, genius is something which really reflects the ability to work within the system. You know, we'd say that Edison got a thousand patents, but a tiny fraction of those were actually uh, useful we remember them, they're very important, of course, uh, and, and this doesn't uh, denigrate Edison's accomplishment at all, but many, many of those patents were simply small improvements on the basic things he was working on, uh, and many of the things he patented turned out not to succeed in the marketplace. Right. I think that's an important part of Edison's genius, was that it wasn't just that he was capable of making uh, a new machine, but that he understood that part of that process was actually convincing other people to buy it, understanding the market, marketing it himself, uh, putting it into a form that was actually affordable. It turned out to be a, you know, an easier thing to create a working light than it was to actually create a, a grid that, ex that, that people were willing and able to afford. Well, it presupposes that somebody else is going to build a power station and someone's going to string the lights between all the houses and offices in which it's right. going to be used. So I can imagine there's a lot of infrastructure questions there. Absolutely. Also, he, he was, he was, uh, yeah, go ahead. Go, go ahead. Yeah, you go ahead. Honey? Yeah. Okay, tell us more about That's this right. Concept. I mean, the, the light bulb, we, we focus on the light bulb because I think it's a great metaphor for inventiveness, uh, but, but obviously the light bulb is just the, the tip of an enormously vast, complicated system, and Edison had to improve every aspect of that. You know, he made an improved dynamo. He was the one who figured out how to, how to create the urban grid for, for the first time, and even how to put a meter on this so that he could actually charge customers and they would feel as if they were getting a reliable utility bill. Wow. You mentioned the concept of creative destruction at the end there. Can you tell us who, who, did, uh, who did Edison have to displace in, in popularizing the concept of electric lighting? Yeah, you know, the, one of the romantic myths about this is that Edison took on the dark, but in fact what he took on was the gas companies who were, <laughs> you know, among the most uh, well-capitalized and politically influential corporations uh, in the country. You know, they had really just boomed after, after uh, coming to the urban environment starting in the 1820s or so. And, and the gas companies saw this as a threat you know, did a lot to lobby against electric light as a, as a dangerous innovation. Uh, and, and in fact, you know, it's interesting to watch. It took, it took decades, even though there were many ways that electric light was superior to gas light. Uh, it took decades for electric light to become the predominant source of light in urban America. Uh, and that's partly because the gas companies got much better. They learned, you know, they, they, in order to compete with Edison and others, they ended up developing much more efficient, delivery of, of gas light, much better mantles. So the light got, the light got better uh, from gas lights uh, in, the, in the middle of this competition. But ultimately, this entire massive uh, infrastructure uh, just ended up providing conduits that Edison used to run his own wires through the old gas lines. Oh, I see. Uh, Larry, this is Larry. I want to ask a quick question. Um, I took a, a class at, when I was at Penn from Thomas Hughes, who ran our History of Science uh, program. <laughs> Yeah, he he wrote a biography on Edison, but then spent most of his career analyzing the corporate lab, uh, Bell Labs, you know, IBM's labs, etc. And he totally bought into this thesis of moving away from 
I'll call it the Eureka individual inventor towards uh, a, a community of scientists working together in an inventive process. But just as I was graduating from Penn in 1987, you know, Bell Labs was closing and we had the advent of Microsoft and Intel and then more recently Google and Amazon. And here we have these, again, inventive geniuses who radically transformed uh, the landscape in their respective fields. You know, you might be right that, you know, we don't expect Thomas Edison to do all the work, but he was sort of, as you said, orchestrating the process, but also getting his hands dirty. And I imagine it's the same yeah. way with the guys at Amazon. Can you comment a little bit about the role of, I'll call it, the, the genius at the center, the, the Steve Jobs, who can make this thing, who has a, a vision and then can lead a team of people to accomplish that vision? Well, I think that's absolutely right. And obviously there are, you know, this is more, you're more likely to find this at what starts as at the margins of the economy. And then as it, as it evolves and, and develops, uh, I think that becomes less likely, right? So we look back absolutely at, at Bill Gates and Steve Jobs and others as, as the sort of the Edisons of their age. I think in, to some extent we are doing the same sort of thing in suggesting that Bill Gates and Steve Jobs gave us uh, the world of personal computers uh, that we are doing with Edison in the sense that we we embody this in a single individual or two uh, for reasons that serve them very well uh, and that we start, we come to think of them as as being uh, sole geniuses rather than people who actually worked within you know developed an education and and got access to uh, capital uh, through a system that was was there to support them. I mean, maybe just to follow up, going back to Steve Jobs for a second. So Steve Jobs starts Apple in his garage. You know, there are a lot of other firms also trying to make personal computers. Um, but Steve Jobs uniquely is successful in getting this Apple product off the ground for its market niche. Um, later, there is a board insurrection, and Steve Jobs is tossed out. And without Steve Jobs, Apple quickly, under you know, good management from Pepsi, uh, Scully take, you know, drives this thing into the ground. It's only when Jobs returns that Apple rejuvenates and is now one of the largest companies in the world. I'm wondering, you know, we, I understand that you're minimizing to some degree uh, Jobs' role, but it's, it seemed critical in the Apple case for their success. How do you deal with like, both sides of the, the, the big vision? Yeah. No, yeah, I would not deny that. I think, I think you know, if the focus is on the actual in, uh, invention of the technology, uh, which I think is what we... You know, we don't give Edison credit for building what became General Electric. We give him credit for the, you know, the eureka moment of understanding about the carbon filament, right? So I think, you know, if we're just talking about Steve Jobs or Bill Gates as people who are uh, entrepreneurs who are capable of building a team, capable of marketing uh, and, and succeed in that re regard, I think that's closer to what we should think about Edison as well. Uh, rather than thinking of, of him or, or some of the others that we think of from the late 19th century as people who, you know, just had a brilliant pioneering idea that came out of, out of their brain and, and not out of the wider culture. One more question, Ernie. Tell us a little bit about Edison's competition with Westinghouse. Well, that's often seen as the, you know, the, the mistake that, that Edison made in that, you know, the, the battle at a certain point as the grid expanded was whether to go with DC power, which was Edison's system, uh, or the, the 
Westinghouse system that relied on AC power. If you look back and look at the moment, uh, first of all, obviously Edison had invested a great deal in DC power and invest in burying his lines in, in American cities and, and building an entire system around that so that there was a momentum to stick with that system. It was also the case that AC power was enormously more dangerous uh, and the technology as it developed uh, in those early years was frequently uh, frying uh, electricians, working the lines, young children who were touching live wires, uh, and in fact burning down factories and in some cases large sections of uh, American cities. So it was easy for Edison to point to this and say, you know, this is the wrong turn. We need to stay within DC power, which is, you know, has its own dangers, but is far less dangerous. Uh, that Ernie, he ended up. Ernie, you know, thank in, you. Sure. Thanks so much. We're going to go on to our, our next speaker, Christine Rosen. Uh, Christine is a senior writer at Commentary Magazine, and she will be discussing mentoring women in the time of Me Too. Christine, go ahead. Thanks, Larry. Well, in 2019, LeanIn.org, which is the women's organization that was founded by Facebook executive Sheryl Sandberg, posts the results of an interesting study about mentorship in the workplace. The study revealed an unintended consequence of the Me Too movement's efforts to change how sexual harassment and sexual assault are understood and dealt with. So as the Washington Post summarized uh, this, this study, the survey found that 60% of male managers say they're uncomfortable doing common workplace activities with women, such as mentoring, socializing, or having one-on-one -on -one meetings. This was a sharp increase um, up from 46% from the previous year. Meanwhile, senior level male managers were nine times more likely to say that they hesitated to take work trips with junior women than they would with junior men. That was also an increase uh, from the previous year. So for women in the workplace, in other words, a movement that was meant to make them safer from harassment was also potentially preventing them from moving up the employment ladder. How did this happen? After all, when the Me Too movement first burst onto the scene with stories about the terrible behavior of powerful men like Hollywood producer Harvey Weinstein, the movement supporters hoped to see it fully transform cultural, social, and legal approaches to harassment and assault. And to some extent, it did. One year after the claims about Weinstein were first reported, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission announced that sexual harassment allegations filed with the agency by employees had increased significantly for the first time in eight years. But the Me Too movement has also faced three consistent challenges that might help explain where we are today with regard to the challenge of mentoring women in the workplace. For one, the movement's embrace of powerful slogans that have been perfectly tailored to our social media age, such as hashtag believe women while galvanizing, are also overly broad and fail to recognize some important principles about how our justice system works, most notably the need for due process when someone alleges harassment or assault and the presumption of innocence of the accused. Believe women assumes that women never make false allegations or never lie about their interactions with men. This is patently untrue, as human nature and even recent history reveals. Recall the false rape accusations that were made by a woman against male students on the lacrosse team at Duke University, which were then uncritically amplified in the media that eventually proved to be a hoax, but not before the young men endured arrest and public character assassination. And yet when women even anonymously lodged serious complaints against men, many of the Me Too movement's most ardent supporters insisted not merely that their allegations deserved a fair hearing, but that they should automatically be believed. This kind of hashtag activism encourages what philosopher Susan Stebbing once called potted thinking, 
not merely trafficking in slogans for effect, but starting to think in them, which destroys nuance and ignores ambiguities. So in practice, this meant, for example, that one of the more infamous uh, examples we can find is a crowdsourced document that was called the, well, I won't say the expletive, but it was called a media men list, which included nearly 70 names and descriptions of supposedly harassing behavior of prominent men in the media. It was updated anonymously, circulated widely. I easily obtained a copy, but there were no standards of due process or vetting for any of the men listed. The careers of many of these men on the list were ruined. Their efforts to defend themselves were dismissed as merely male privilege. Likewise, an anonymous woman nearly destroyed the career of comedian Aziz Ansari after she wrote about a date they went on, which she claimed uh, ended badly. Even though the details she provided show she was a willing participant in what went on, and she only later regretted the encounter when Ansari didn't continue to pursue the relationship. Ansari was effectively canceled for a year and held up as an example of predatory male privilege. Two, in the post-MeToo era, men who avoid mentoring and personal interactions with women in the workplace are merely responding rationally to the lack of clarity that still surrounds standards for male-female interaction in the workplace. Consider the fact that despite decades of mandatory sexual harassment training in workplaces nationwide, its effectiveness has yet to be proven. There's even evidence that for some men in the workplace, the training has the unintended consequence of making them downplay the severity of harassment. Consider that just recently, one of the female employees who's accused New York State Governor Andrew Cuomo of sexual harassment told this told reporters that Cuomo himself had skipped the state mandatory sexual harassment training. <laughs> Studies showing harassment training's ineffectiveness don't mean that such training is useless, but it suggests that the way we've been pursuing it hasn't been successful and is in need of reform. A recent study in Harvard Business Review showed positive results in workplaces that approached harassment as something to be solved holistically by promoting more women to key management roles, for example, and fostering a workplace culture that encourages not only those who are harassed to report it, but bystanders who witness it to do so as well. Third, and finally, I think we must acknowledge that a great deal of partisan hypocrisy has characterized the Me Too movement, and this has prompted cynicism on the part of many Americans about claims of harassment. Some prominent men on the left side of the political aisle have been exposed and punished, such as Senator Al Franken, who resigned after allegations were made against him, and New York State Attorney General Eric Schneiderman, whose fall was as swift as it was unexpected. Schneiderman was an ambitiously liberal politician who had supported women's rights and the Me Too movement loudly early and often, and yet he stood so credibly accused of behaving like a predator in his private life that he was compelled to resign his office a mere three hours after the article featuring the accusations about him appeared online. But many more have benefited from partisan leanings of Me Too activists who suddenly discover the virtues of due process when politicians on their own side of the aisle are the ones who stand accused. I'm thinking here, for example, of Virginia Lieutenant Governor Justin Fairfax, Andrew Cuomo, and even the accusations that were made against now President Joe Biden. Even though all of these, many of these same activists previous, previously demanded that claims of accusers of Republican politicians or Supreme Court justice nominees like Brett Kavanaugh not be questioned. Bad behavior and the entitlement that fuels it can be found in every social class among both women and men, regardless of political affiliation. Partisan instinct to avoid acknowledging it leads to embarrassing intellectual acrobatics. We see it on the right with defenders of Donald Trump, who's also been accused of assault and harassment, as well as on the left. But, but allowing this hypocrisy to flourish harms all victims. Any sweeping movement for social change should prompt complicated questions like those that have been raised by the Me Too movement. 
But the great good that this movement has achieved doesn't mean we should avoid debating the often unintended harms that it brings as well. Only then can we move forward in treating each other with greater respect and civility, both in the workplace and outside of it. Thanks. Thanks very much indeed, Christine. That's great. Um, you probably remember the legal scholar Catherine McKinnon, who used to say that American law itself has a male's eye view. And I think some members of the Me Too movement have responded by saying the due process and uh, approach and the presumption of innocence just isn't quite good enough. Is there a way around the traditional presumption of innocence standard if the accused harassers simply deny it and cases come down to a he said, she said standoff? It's such an important question. Um, I, I am not a fan of McKinnon's line of logic because I, one of the things I think that's very powerful about our justice system is the willingness to treat each person who comes before it as an individual. That said, it's true that particularly with regard to sexual harassment, you know, a lot of it can be said to be in the eye of beholder. What one person thinks is just a harmless joke can be quite offensive and, and if repeated over time, um, harassing to, to someone else. So I think that that's where some of our, uh, one of the huge benefits of the Me Too movement and something I think we should uh, continue to encourage is that just talking about what is and isn't considered offensive as culturally is important. And being able to have conversations where people can air those concerns is important. There are separate legal standards, though, where, you know, arguing that we should see things, through, you know, through a reasonable woman standard, for example, uh, rather than the reasonable person standard, starts to get for me a little murkier because it then could bleed into arguing for special protections for people based on sex, for example, which I think a lot of um, uh, more radically individualistic approaches to the law, which I share, would not, would not really uh, approve of. Well, is the concept of harassment intrinsically ambiguous? And even more so, what about phrases like the perceived hostile working environment? Is it ever going to be possible to come to a consensus about what constitutes those things? No. <laughs> to, to put it bluntly, no. This is actually where a lot of the problems emerge um, and why the training, the sort of sexual harassment training we see in human resources departments is, is really ineffective because it's... Uh, by, by mandating this training, which is really teaching people what the law says, not trying to help them gain more empathy and insight into what might or might not be offensive or harassing, um, it, it doesn't actually keep the conversation moving forward. And, and we know from uh, government statistics, for example, the General Accounting Office has, has shown that you know very small numbers of federal government employees, for example, around 11% who claim to have experienced harassment ever file a formal complaint. So there are a lot of barriers even to reporting this right now. Part of that is that it can be difficult to prove in a he said, she said situation. However, I do think if we're talking about cultural norms, those conversations are the kinds of things we should be having, but they have to be done in an environment where the human resource managers who are, who are sponsoring them can allow people to have free and open-ended conversations without fear of you know, liability without fear of being ostracized or, or labeled a harasser for raising questions that I think are legitimate. For example, the ones that a lot of men in corporate America have raised about their discomfort and their the ambiguity about what the new standards are with regard to mentoring their female employees. Most of them want to do the right thing. The question is who's setting the rules for those? And I think as a culture, we're still trying to come to terms with that. 
Yeah. One of the very saddest things you said just now was that the EEOC regarded the increased number of reported cases as a good sign, although presumably you could also regard it as a bad sign. That leads to the question of whether it's possible for us to have any kind of estimate about how widespread workplace harassment really is. Yeah, no, there's a lot of uh, battling about the statistics with that regard. Um, I, you know, I will say that one of the most encouraging things we've seen in workplaces that have really tried to examine and overhaul how they talk about harassment is um, you know, Catalyst, which, which uh, looks at uh, women in the workplace, and particularly in corporate America, has found that you know, about 40% of the management level positions in this country are now held by women. But interestingly for this discussion, 74% of managers in human resources are women. These are the people who are actually implementing and, and fostering a lot of these policies. So there's a real opportunity here to, to have the HR people who are implementing these, often it should be said as a, as a preventive liability measure for the companies they work for, but still women are themselves often in charge of fostering these conversations. So to say that somehow you know, women are placed in the role of kind of being preyed upon or always being victims isn't quite right. So Yes, the, the statistic um, from the EEOC is only encouraging in the sense that I do think the Me Too movement was effective at making people feel more comfortable discussing these matters in a way that perhaps before they were ashamed or fearful of doing. Yeah. We tend to pay most attention to stories like this when it comes from politics or from Hollywood. Are cases easier or harder to resolve when they happen in obscure and unglamorous workplaces where there's no danger of partisanship leading to double standards? Yes, actually, I think they are. And I think, you know, one of the criticisms of the Me Too movement was that it did focus a lot of efforts on, you know, well-known cases. You know, people, you know, there, there's a lot of Korean interest in the Hollywood, you know, producer who's abusing starlets and the politician who says one thing and does another. But in fact, the most vulnerable communities here are, say, if you're a female factory floor worker and your supervisor is harassing you and you fear being able to find another job, but you can't take the harassment and you don't want to be a troublemaker, what do you do? So I think it's when the power relationships and the power dynamics for women and men are highly unequal and the woman isn't a celebrity or doesn't have a, a, an outlet with which to share her concern um, and to bring forward a complaint or fears doing that, that is actually the more common situation. And even with laws on the books and processes on the books that, allow, that, that have that option, because remember, under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 that, and subsequent Supreme Court decisions about this, you know, certain forms of harassment are sex discrimination. So there are legal avenues, but the, both the emotional, the financial, and the professional cost to women to bring those complaints is quite high. And we don't talk enough about that in the context of everyday working people. We tend to enjoy the Hollywood stories more, I think, for their salaciousness. Yeah. Christine, this is uh, Larry Bernstein. Sorry, I have a quick question mm -hmm. for you. Sure. So uh, the, your key insight here is that the Me Too movement um, has under undermine cultural norms of daily interactions between, uh, we'll call it male managers and their female colleagues, and that this lack of interaction will undermine their careers uh, eventually. Um, I have a question as it relates to how COVID has changed the dynamics of the workplace. Uh, given that we're on a lot of Zoom calls and we no longer see our workers day to day, uh, is, does that benefit women in this sort of environment? In other words, because men don't feel under the gun by having these one-on-one -on -one meetings or uh, being in uncomfortable situations to be challenged, um, do you think that will foster and improve male-female relations? 
at work? It's, it's an interesting question. I mean, it's possible in the sense that there's a kind of flattening effect that all, everyone having to conduct business via Zoom rather than an informal, in-person relationship type of uh, interactions uh, might allow for, for more equality in that sense. I actually think, though, that long-term, it's not going to have that effect because it's often in the building of relationships between mentors and mentees and, and among coworkers that important you know, professional connections and career opportunities are created. Um, there's also the issue, of course, of how, where, where the domestic and childcare burden has fallen during COVID onto whose shoulders. And we do have some preliminary evidence that, that more women than men have taken up the slack, even if they are still you know, uh, working themselves, of taking on more of the domestic burden. So that would eventually lead to uh, you know, sort of unequal outcomes for them professionally if they can't devote as much time to the workplace. So it is an interesting question. I actually, I hate Zoom meetings, so I personally, you know, hope they, they can't end soon enough for my days, but I, I still think that those important professional relationships should be encouraged and that part of the way we're going to get back to be able to having them between the sexes is to be able to talk about what the ground rules are and not to always presume that every man is a suspected predator and every woman a potential victim. Do you think we can at least assume that the situation is better now than it was back in the 1960s and 70s when the concept of sexual harassment in the workplace first developed? Absolutely. No, I mean, I think just the fact that the, that the way that we all discussed what was going on during the Me Too movement is evidence of that. Um, legally, in terms of crafting effective enforcement policy, we still have a long way to go. But culturally, yes. I mean, anyone who goes back and watches a movie from the 60s or 70s and sees some of the gender stereotypes and things that were laughed off as humor that actually now look quite awful and predatory, uh, that's, a, that's a sign, I think, of how far we've come, that we don't actually accept as or, or ignore uh, when power differences are brought to bear unfairly on women, uh, particularly in the workplace, by, by men who are either their peers or their bosses. So, yeah, I, do, I, I think it, this is actually an optimistic story long term. Great. Good. Thanks very much indeed. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Okay. Uh, we now move on to our discussion about uh, Bonfire of the Vanities, Tom Wolfe's uh, 1980s classic. Uh, our first speaker uh, in this panel will be David Grazian, a professor of sociology at the University of Pennsylvania. Go ahead, David. Uh, thanks, Larry. Uh, can you hear me? Perfect. Go. Okay, great. As a teenager growing up in the New York suburbs during the 1980s, my vision of the city was deeply colored by the incendiary news coverage on local TV and the tabloid papers my father brought home, the Daily News and the New York Post. Their headlines screamed of junk bond kings, white-collar crime, crooked politicians, opportunistic community leaders, real estate moguls, fear of street and subway muggings, even scarier vigilantes, and all of this against a backdrop of racial strife in the city. In The Bonfire of the Vanities, published in 1987, author Tom Wolfe spins these headlines into laugh-out-loud satire, cranking up the panic of the city to 11. There are few heroes in Bonfire, with everyone cynically on the take, out for themselves. Most of all, the city is divided by class. There are the haves, like Bond salesman, Yale man, and so-called master of the universe, Sherman McCoy. His wife, Judy, who got their Park Avenue co-op co apartment featured in Architectural Digest. McCoy's seductive mistress, Maria Ruskin and the rich ladies that Wolf calls social x-rays on account of their slim bodies, 
so thin, quote, you can see lamplight through their bones. Then there are the have-nots, people of color who fill the city's jails and courthouses and heed the leadership of a corrupt black power broker deliciously named Reverend Bacon, who exploits them for private gain. And then finally, there are those working stiffs in the middle. There's Peter Fallow, a British alcoholic and parasitic reporter who writes for the New York City Light, a thinly veiled stand-in for the New York Post. And Larry Kramer, an assistant district attorney commuting by subway from Manhattan to an underpaid job out in the Bronx. These characters all converge around a singular event that drives the narrative of the novel, a vehicular incident in a Bronx ghetto neighborhood from which McCoy and his mistress flee after possibly running over um, a black teenage boy with McCoy's $48,000 Mercedes sports roadster. Reading Bonfire more than 30 years after its 1987 publication, one is struck first by how this book is as much about New York City at the time as it is about any of its cringeworthy characters. And then one is then consequently struck by how much New Yorker no New York by how much New York no longer looks the way that is depicted in the novel and how much the city has changed in the intervening years. Most apparently, the crime rate has dramatically sunk. For instance, in 1987 there were 1672 murders in New York. 30 years later, that figure had dropped to only 292 murders. With the crime drop rate came the renewal of Times Square and the gentrification of Harlem, Alphabet City, and the outer boroughs, including many parts of the South Bronx where Bonfire takes place. Affluent whites used to fear venturing into Bronx neighborhoods like Mott Haven, the scene of the hit and run that swings the novel's plot into motion. Today, it's local residents of color who fear displacement as upper income white gentrifiers move in and rents increase. In typical New York fashion, real estate gurus have embarrassingly renamed the South Bronx Sobro. Much else has also changed. The aristocratic world of high finance where McCoy works, a patrician investment banking firm dubbed Pierce and Pierce, where McCoy gets his loafers shined at his desk, has been replaced by the relative meritocracy represented by today's hedge funds, day traders, and the physicists and engineers who perfect their algorithms. Meanwhile, many of the decade's most controversial figures, whose exploits are thinly masked in the book, have been rehabilitated in the new millennium. Most famously, race car provocateur turned MSNBC anchor Al Sharpton. Even the MTA subways are cleaner now, which hopefully will remain the case after COVID. In fact, the New York caricature and bonfire may seem as outdated as Tom Wolfe's white three-piece suits and creamy silk ties. Yet if the novel still resonates with readers beyond the fact that Park Avenue and its thousands of springtime yellow tulips still looks as radiant as is described in the book, it may be due to Wolfe's attention to the all-too-human ways his class-conscious New Yorkers experience status envy as an unavoidable fact of life in the city. Indeed, New York may have enjoyed a transformation from Gotham to Disney World, or from a naked city of shadowy noir to a giant entertainment free-for-all, but its class and racial cleavages still remain, even among the haves and the top 0.1%, call them the have a whole lot mores. The married men in the novel have elaborate sexual fantasies about women other than their wives, or even their mistresses for that matter. 
Peter Fallow spends his late nights carousing over cocktails and chicken paillard at bistros where he prays somebody else will pick up his tab. Even Sherman McCoy, a so-called master of the universe, frets not only over his highly leveraged apartment, advancing balloon payments, and his cheating heart, but his inability to afford to keep a limousine and driver in the city while only making a million dollars a year. Then again, perhaps only Wolf could make the reader feel sorry for such sad saps. Fantastic, David. All right, before we get to question and answers, we're going to have you joined by a panelist, Julie Solomon, the former Wall Street Journal and New York Times film and TV critic. She will discuss uh, aspects of her book, The Devil's Candy, The Anatomy of a Hollywood Fiasco, The Making of the Film, Bonfire of the Vanities. Julie, go ahead. Thanks so much, Larry. Um, so Larry's invitation to be part of this discussion came at the perfect moment. Uh, this year marks the 30th anniversary of the publication of The Devil's Candy, the book I wrote about Brian De Palma's adaptation of Bonfire of the Vanities. I was film critic at the Wall Street Journal at the time, and De Palma, who I had gotten to know in the course of doing articles about Hollywood, gave me complete access to filming from start to finish. My book came out a year after the movie did. Um, it was an amazing experience for me and not so amazing for the filmmakers because nobody's been allowed to do it since then. Uh, while Tom Wolfe's book became a symbol of everything that was wrong with New York in the 1980s, Brian De Palma's movie became a symbol of everything that was wrong with Hollywood filmmaking as the 1990s began. Bonfire the movie was lacerated by critics. And my book did really well, no doubt in part because Bonfire was such a huge publicized so-called failure. In Newsweek, the critics said, De Palma's misfortune is Solomon's gain. It didn't make me feel very good about somebody who had been so generous to me. So people always ask me when I knew that the movie was awful. And I always say, I never did. Uh, for me, when I watched the movie, I didn't really see a movie. I saw the making of each scene. And the truth is, to prepare for today, I watched the movie again. And honestly, I think it's a movie worth reconsidering. It may not be a great film, but it's certainly an interesting film and a worthy artifact. Uh, the truth is, interest in both the film and Tom Wolfe's book remained strong. A new audio version of my book, The Devil's Candy, is coming out this summer, and I've been asked to do a seven-part podcast about the making of the movie right now, um, sort of very meta, uh, the movie about a book and then a podcast about the book about the making of the movie about the book, uh, very 21st century. Uh, so I've been thinking about Bonfire a lot, and I am amazed at how Tom Wolfe's observations of the world he was living in were so prescient. As David pointed out, it's true that much in New York where I live has changed for the better. But so much is the same. Wolf wrote about the masters of the universe, the mainly men on Wall Street who we would now refer to as the 1%. The tabloid press that Wolf satirized has been replaced by Twitter, but the net effect is the same, only worse. And Wolf's take on race certainly heralded the Black Lives Matter movement, as did his cynical or accurate takedown on New York, uh, New York politicians, Bill de Blasio, Andrew Cuomo, need I say more. 
In the course of writing my book, I had the good fortune to spend several hours interviewing Tom Wolfe on two separate occasions. His prose was lacerating, but he himself was a courtly Southern gentleman. Though Bonfire was wildly popular, Wolfe got plenty of criticism for being sexist, racist, ultra-conservative. I would argue that he was a great reporter, even when writing a novel, and a good social critic, demonizing just about everyone in the cause of making people think about the world we live in. He wasn't presenting his characters to praise them, but rather to skewer the real-life people they represented. The filmmakers, on the other hand, lost heart about two seconds after they bought the rights to Wolf's book. I'm not sure the ter term politically correct had been invented yet, but that's what the movie suffered from at the time, especially when it came to casting. David has laid out the plot, so you kind of know the characters. Sherman McCoy, the master of the universe, was deemed too unlikable by the Hollywood execs, so they gave the role to Tom Hanks. Just off his success in Big, remember how adorable he was? The grown man in a 12-year-old boy's body? Wolf's dissipated British journalist, Peter Fellow, became Bruce Willis, hot off of Die Hard, and look who's talking. Remember he played a baby in utero and then after birth? But the biggest change was in Wolf's sole noble character, Judge Kavitsky, the Jewish judge who sticks to the law. Alan Arkin was supposed to play him. But all of a sudden, the executives in Tupama had a flash. By then, they had turned all the white men, male main characters into these guys who were sort of nice and likable. But all the blacks in the movie were still caricatures. So they decided Judge Kavitsky should be black. And not just black, he'd be play played by Morgan Freeman. For Tom Wolfe, this casting cut the guts out of his story. I remember talking with him about what he called the crossover point politically. He meant that the moment had arrived where new groups were coming into their own politically, the same way that had happened in previous generations for Italians, Irish, and Jews. Now Latinx and Blacks were becoming dominant populations, but the ruling political class at the time hadn't made the shift. Judge Kavitsky had to be who he was to make that point to illustrate the tension that existed every day as black defendants faced white judges and prosecutors. I wish I could say Bonfire was entirely a history lesson, but it certainly is not. As I said at the beginning, the issues Wolf wrote about are far from settled. In my non-work life, I'm board chair of BRC, one of the city's largest provider of social services and shelter to people who don't have homes. I started volunteering at BRC 30 years ago, right about the same time I started reporting the devil's candy. At that time, you may remember, the city was overwhelmed by homeless people, and we still have an enormous homeless population. So those issues that Tom Wolfe was writing about, the issues that drove people out of their homes and into the streets, haven't been resolved. As for The Devil's Candy, Tom Wolfe recognized it would be difficult, maybe impossible, to condense his huge book into a two-hour movie. He told me then, it's too bad, movies don't run ten, nine or ten hours. Though he spent the last part of his career as a novelist, Tom Wolfe remained at heart a journalist. He wanted us to look at the world around us and say, what, really? I really believe Bonfire has important things to say. Maybe we should have listened more closely last time around. 
And I think you should watch the movie. It gets four stars on Rotten Tomatoes. Julie, thank you. All right, I'm going to open with a question for you and then go to David in a second. Um, first, the, the point you make is that the, um, the producers got cold feet uh, regarding Judge Kavitsky and, and bringing in Morgan Freeman to, to play his role. Um, do you think that we've got, uh, the producers are even more politically correct now? And could a film like this even be made today to its vision? You know, interestingly enough, I was thinking about it, uh, about Tom Wolfe saying the, that the book should have run nine or ten hours. I think it probably could be to, made today as a miniseries or a limited run series. And in fact, there were news reports about five or six years ago that Amazon had bought the was thinking about buying the rights to the book or had bought the rights to the book and were thinking of doing that, but nothing's ever happened. Um, you know, if you look at things like Succession, I think that we probably could do it, probably not as a two-hour movie, but as a longer-form piece. You know, another thing about the book is I thought of it um, as a tragedy. And uh, Sherman McCoy, although not a lovable character, um, we really understand him and, and feel his pain. And we cringe as, you know, all these parts are moving towards uh, the center stage. When they chose Tom Hanks uh, to play him, did they effectively give up on the tragedy? Did they uh, not make him a, a real enough character that was worthy of, of that type of empathy? How do you think about why Tom Hanks didn't work in the role? No, I mean, I actually think they chose Tom Hanks exactly for that reason. And, you know, just to go back to the whole question of whether he did or didn't work in the role, I think one of the things that happened to Bonfire, the vanity, um, which, uh, you know, as I said, I think if you watch the movie today, it's pretty entertaining. But I think when the movie came out, the people who reviewed the movie were critics like me, except I didn't because I'd spent the year uh, following it around. But critics had all read the book. So when they reviewed the movie, I think the backlash was not against the movie that was in front of them, but the movie they had inside their heads because they had such strong feelings about Tom Wolfe's book. So, you know, no, Tom Hanks wouldn't be the person you would cast in that role. But if you, don't, if you hadn't read the book and you saw Tom Hanks as Sherman McCoy, I think he did exactly what you're talking about, Larry. He let you see the more sympathetic side of Sherman. Another example of what you talk about in your book is uh, the role of the mistress, Maria Ruskin, Tom Hanks's uh, love interest. Um, in the book, you mentioned interviewing Uma Thurman as a potential role at the time, a 19-year-old uh, aspiring actress. Um, and when there's the meeting you describe between Tom Hanks and Brian De Palma, uh, Tom Hanks basically says, you know, I didn't uh, feel any sexual tension or uh, that, that, that actress won't work with me. And Brian De Palma is stunned by it. Um, and instead they go with Melanie Griffith. When I watch the movie now, um, and I see Melanie Griffith in the role, I, I think she kills it. Um, and I actually can't see Uma Thurman uh, doing it right. In retrospect, how do you think about the decision to go with Melanie Griffith over Uma Thurman in that role? Oh, I think it was the right decision. I think Melanie was great. I mean, for me, part of what was just fascinating about the whole Uma Thurman thing was 
that a lot of the duplicity and craziness that Tom Wolfe wrote about in terms of people's relationships with their families or in their jobs played out on the movie set. So they had already been in negotiations with Melanie Griffith to play this role when they start that when they auditioned Duma because on the spur of the moment De Palma thought she might do a better job. Um, you know, interestingly, uh, thinking about what Christine was talking about earlier about harassment of women, when I look back at the way women were treated on that set, I mean, there were hardly any, but it was uh, really a reminder of how much things have changed. Even though, interestingly, the, the executive in charge of the production, Lucy Fisher, was a woman. On the other hand, Melanie Griffith, who was one of the three stars of the movie, got paid less than 30% of what both Bruce Willis and Tom Hanks made. David, to bring you into the conversation, um, the first question I asked Julie was, could they make this movie today? Um, let me ask a more basic question to you. Um, can you teach Bonfire of the Vanities in a class at Penn uh, in a world where they're taking Dr. Seuss off the shelves? I don't think so. Um, the, I mean, the truth. I mean, the truth is the, you know, for all of Tom Wolfe's talents. Um, he's never really portrayed African-American characters all that well. Um, I mean, you see this in some of his earlier work as well, um, you know, like in Radical Chic. Um, the, book, uh, the book is a sprawling novel, almost 700 pages. There's not, um, there's not a single relatable uh, female character. Um, so I'm not and, – and it's about a New York City – um, that again, that doesn't entirely exist anymore. Um, whereas, whereas being it, whereas if we had a, if we had an updated version of, of, of this kind of a, of this kind of a book about sort of about the city of the city as it exists today, um, I think it could be taught very well in schools. I mean, so one example of this and sort of moving, moving from, in, if we can shift media, um, in the urban studies program at Penn, well, we have a course on the city, and the primary text for that course um, is the um, is the is the, the five season um, run of the show The Wire, um, which takes place in Baltimore. And like Tom Wolfe's novel, is sort of the sprawling um, depiction of the city with lots and lots of interlocking characters. Um, and there's a there's an entire season devoted uh, to corruption in politics. There's an entire season devoted to corruption in journalism. Um, in a lot of ways, the wire, um, the, the wire, the wire captures um, the sort of the all of the sort of the the, the trickery surrounding uh, race relations and racial politics in a city like in a city like Baltimore. Um, I mean, in a lot of ways, in a lot of ways, the wire works uh, works perfectly um, as a as sort of a a sort of a, a sort of a, a, um, a text for the for a class like that in a way that Bonfire of the Vanities just sort of seems kind of dated and out of touch. I, I love The Wire as well, and I think it's a great example. Could you also speak a little bit about the role and use of literature and film in sociology as a way of um, going behind the scenes to understand the complexities of social life? Sure. Um, so this was something that was actually much more popular in the 1950s 
and 1960s, um, I think in part because sociologists were, um, were, were more considered public intellectuals um, in mid-century America than they are today. Um, and so scholars like uh, C. Wright Mills and Irving Goffman um, and David Reisman wrote books that um, were bestsellers um, that were going to be read by large, uh, large swaths of the of the of of, of the population. Um, these were real sort of uh, these were real sort of intellectual figures that both relied on um, that relied on on film and uh, and novels for um, for sort of uh, for sort of examples that they could pull from fiction um, to sort of illuminate the things that we the things that we observe in everyday life. Um, in a lot of ways, uh, and in a lot of ways, you know, Tom Wolfe's writing, particularly his nonfiction, um, given that uh, given given that he relies so much on reportage, um, and then brings that reportage into um, into uh, Bonfire of the Vanities. Um, in a lot of ways, Bonfire of the Vanities feels like a work of sociology um, because he's able to take his reporting and his observations about everyday life. Um, and infuse his books um, with that uh, with that sort of everyday um, kind of um, kind of often kind of authenticity. Let's go back to your uh, comparison with The Wire, which I just loved. Um, in The Wire, they have that season on the, Bal uh, the Baltimore Sun, you know, going in depth into, yep. the, into the media. And in this book, the, the media plays a very important role as well, and how uh, Reverend Bacon was very successful in using the press, uh, making that relationship with Peter Fallon uh, to, to make, uh, to kind of bring this story to its um, to become a frenzy. Uh, and he also makes fun of how TV works, how the demonstrations were made for TV, and, and how to use the press to your benefit. Um, how do you think about, I guess, a two-part question. How do you think, was Wolf successful in uh, the dramatization of the role of the media, and has the media radically changed uh, since the mid-'80s when he wrote this in terms of their uh, presence and power? Um, so the, the second, so the, so the first question is, I do think he does a really great job of, um, of depicting the sort of the media, the media forces at play, um, in the 19, in the 1980s, particularly surrounding New York politics. As I said, sort of my, my, my front row, my front row seat, um, to sort of New York culture and politics was all through television. Um, having grown up in the New York suburbs and watching um, and watching local news coverage um, of this. On the other hand, um, in a lot of ways, we we kind of a lot of a lot of the points that he makes we kind of take uh, we kind of take for granted, right? We kind of were familiar with the idea that uh, public demonstrations um, are very often what Daniel Borston, uh, the historian, referred to as pseudo events um, that are. Um, Right, that are events that are simply yeah. put on for the purpose of being um, of being of being being report being reported on. Um, I think, uh, as Julie pointed out, um, if you were to do some if you were to do something like this today, there would be a whole lot of there would be a whole lot of talk about social media um, and uh, and mobilizing uh, mobilizing bots 
um, to create disinformation campaigns. Um, I mean, I think the media, the media landscape that we have is far more technologically sophisticated um, than, than, than back then. And I think, and I think because, because we all use social media, we're all extraordinarily familiar with the ways in which the media can be manipulated um, to, the, you know, to, the, to the ends that were used by uh, Reverend Bacon in Bonfire. I want to go to uh, Black Lives Matter for a second. Um, so what's what's really interesting about Bonfire is it kind of turned Black Lives Matter on on, on the 180 degrees. Here, um, un, okay, in the set, uh, in the current world, uh, the police and the district attorneys are viewed as antagonists to the African American community. And in this book. Um, both the police and uh, the district attorney's office uh, believe that what they really want is the great white defendant. They want to take down uh, someone who looks like Sherman McCoy, and they can't believe their good luck. Uh, he comes right out of central casting as the man to take down. Um, how would you distinguish between uh, the desire to destroy the great white defendant and Black Lives Matter's fears that these same organizations are being primarily used to take down the African American community? Well, I mean, I mean, to me, I would say that the, you know, the, the sort of the desire to take down the great white defendant is right is sort of an exception that proves the rule, right? I mean, they what the reason they need to take down. Sherman McCoy, I must said Tom Hanks. Um, the reason they had to take down Sherman McCoy um, is to cover up all of the sort of the everyday systematic racism um, that, uh, that the criminal justice system, um, you know, inflicts on, uh, on Latino um, and black populations, um, you know, uh, on, a daily, on, a, on, a daily, on a daily basis. Um, and so it becomes very clear that in terms of that, in terms of the politics of the moment, um, Sherman McCoy becomes a becomes a, a useful um, becomes a useful a useful scapegoat um, in a uh, in a politically uh, in a politically sort of uh, volatile uh, volatile volatile climate. Um, but it's fairly but but it's fairly clear um, that Wolf does see this as a corrupt. As, as a corrupt, systematically racist, um, racist system um, that sort of that sort of is in need of a scapegoat for its own um, for its own for you know for its own survival. Julie, to bring you back in, uh, you you start out your discussion by mentioning that it's been 30 years since the film and 30 years since you've written your book. Um, you know, I read the book. Uh, in 1987 when it was first released and I had just started work at Solomon Brothers at the time um, as a 21 year old financial analyst and I, I read the book with open mouth uh, in complete shock as to uh, these various characters in these various worlds which frankly I had yet to be exposed to. Um, the only part of, of the book that I had any experience with was ironically Pierce and Pierce. Uh, which was based on the trading floor I was working on at Solomon Brothers, which was uncannily accurate. I didn't know any social x-rays. I had never been to an Upper East Side dinner party. But now that um, you know, I'm 54 uh, and I've had a chance to go to these dinner parties, um, I now know that he was completely accurate and a very good social critic. And I'm just wondering, as, as a film critic, now coming at uh, reviewing this movie uh, with 30 years more of age, 
uh, how do you see how accurate the book was and um, and how the film could expose some of those uh, interesting satire? So, um, you know, as I said before, I think the the, the movie um, the movie is an interesting movie. It's an interesting artifact of the time, but also just an interesting movie. And I, I do have to say, I'm sad to hear David say that you think that you couldn't teach Bonfire of the Vanities in a classroom because it seems like, um, yes, certainly parts of it are dated, but I think to talk about how somebody who is an incredible journalist writing at that time would talk about the social issues um, in this satiric vein um, it feels sort of <laughs> very sad to me as a liberal arts person to think that you couldn't have that discussion. Um, uh, in terms of the movie, I think that um, it's an odd movie because De Palma is so much a visual stylist and Tom Wolfe is a, is, is a word man. So Tom Wolfe painted every single picture with words and De Palma tried to match that with the, with his visual style. So sometimes the movie's just a little bit jarring with all these weird camera angles and exaggerations. Um, but I think that um, I think that it really holds up as 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 a as a satire and it seems so much smarter than so many movies I see today. David, to bring you in on that, um, you mentioned that you thought it wasn't Tom Wolfe does a poor job with some of the African-American characters, um, but the lead African-American character in this book uh, is Reverend Bacon. And for me, it's a, he's a, Bacon is a very complicated character. Um, on the one hand, he plays this uh, or, black organizer, but behind the scenes, he's also running um, a municipal bond underwriting business. He has some insurance businesses. He seems to be very familiar with all the upscale New York restaurants, uh, and he also seems to have his pulse in a manipulator of the press. Uh, he seems like an incredible giant. Um, why do you feel that when he creates characters like Bacon, it's just um, ridiculous? Um, again, I think a lot of it is a lot of it is the way that he describes black English vernacular. Um, a lot of this comes and a lot of this comes through in the very first scene in the novel. Um, which is sort of a jarring way to start the, which is a jarring way to start the, to start the book. And this is at a, um, right. This is essentially at a, at a, at a, demonst at a demonstration that, uh, that erupts, um, that erupts during a political, during a political speech. Um, you know, the, you know, the other thing, the other thing I'll say about, you know, first, you know, first of all, if, you know, uh, if, if a faculty member in urban studies wanted to teach this, in, uh, wanted to teach this at Penn, I certainly wouldn't stop them. Um, I just simply wouldn't, I wouldn't teach it myself. It's not really where my students are at either. I mean, they're really looking for, um, they're really looking for a more diverse, wide variety, um, wide, wide variety of voices um, that speak to them. And I just don't see this as the kind of book that, that speaks to sort of, um, to sort of the millennial generation of, of of today's college students, particularly particularly given how many of those students have been, um, uh, I want to say, uh, uh, you know, have been moved by the Black Lives Matter, um, you know, social movement. 
David, just going back to Radical Chic for a second, which was uh, Tom Wolfe's, I guess, first uh, one of his first books, and it describes a cocktail party on a, at a Park Avenue apartment where the Black Panthers are invited, um, and some wealthy Jewish uh, guys are, are having an apartment and talking with them, and the Black Panther activist says, you know, um, what's your plans? And he says, uh, you know, our next step is to kind of burn down these buildings here on Park. And the fellow says, like, which building? Because I live on Park. <laughs> uh, and it's very funny. I mean, he's very clever in kind of like bringing to a head uh, when people's interests are not on the same page and them not realizing at the same time. So, you know, in some ways, he's an artist. He's clever. Um, he's not that serious. Robin Bacon isn't a serious character either. Just to. No, that's right. I mean, no, I mean, that's, I mean, I mean, I mean, that's, I mean, that's right. It's just, I mean, it, I mean, it doesn't do, it doesn't, I mean, part of the, part of the challenge though for him, right? I mean, so when I think about his first book, um, or rather his first full length, uh, his first full length um, nonfiction novel, The Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test, um, you know, that's a book that really sort of, um, that really makes you feel as though you are that really makes you feel as though you are there, um, and um, and Ken Kesey and the Merry Pranksters really felt like even though he had only spent a couple of weeks with them, he they he had really sort of gotten their argo, their um, their forms of their ways of talking, um, their 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 sort of their their life their lifestyle. Um, they really felt like he had sort of he had sort of he had sort of nailed it. Um, and I guess I just don't see, um, it's just hard to imagine black readers um, seeing themselves in Tom Wolfe's writing. Well, he goes after the Jews as well. I mean, he is relentless on Abe Weiss sure. and Larry Kramer. He's relentless on Judge Kavitsky. I mean, it's just, it's incredible, uh, the venom that comes out. Um, but <laughs> I don't think Jews feel the same way about it. I just go in a, in a different direction for a second. Um, one of... Wolf's first books is on is a book called New Journalism, which is an edited collection of articles, um, kind of reinvigorating what journalism is. He kind of takes Truman Capote's uh, In Cold Blood and starts talking about um, w giving the journalist license to be creative uh, and comment about what's going on people's minds, where in fact journalists have really no idea. In other words, he's using right. the ideas of literature and applying it to journalism. And I think what's fascinating about um, Bonfire is he's able to uh, take the ideas of journalism and reinvigorate back into literature, kind of reversing his first uh, great advent. Uh, so your thoughts on journalism and literature and vice versa? No, 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 I think, I think that's right. You know, and for me as a sociologist, um, you know, what one of, you know, a lot of the writing that made me want to become a sociologist was that sort of creative nonfiction, um, new journalism of the 60s period, including, um, including the electrical at acid test. Um, you know, the idea, I mean, in a lot of ways, what he is, you know, what he is doing is he's infusing sort of sociological ethnography with art. Um, and, you know, I think, I think it's something I wish sociologists were more uh, were trained to do better, and I wish it was something that sociologists wanted to do, uh, wanted to do, wanted to do better. Um, we might be more a part of the public conversation, uh, you know, 
you know, if we if we did, um, you know, and I think and I agree. I think Tom Wolf um, does sort of an equally good job of sort of taking his reportage and putting it into his pouring it into his novels, um, you know, much in the way that realists um, like Emil Zola, um, you know, did at the turn of the century. One of my favorite characters in the novel uh, is a real estate broker who we first meet at that uh, dinner party uh, where Sherman McCoy is seated next to Maria Ruskin. And it seems innocuous at the time. She plays very little interest. But she is one of the first phone calls when Sherman gets into trouble and says, oh, by wants, the way. She wants to help him sell his apartment, right? Yeah, and he can't believe how the vultures are circling so quickly. I thought it was just right. incredibly insightful on Tom Wolfe's part. It's fantastic. Um, Julie, question for you. Um, you mentioned that you had unfettered access to, to making this uh, book about the movie, uh, but that since then no one has allowed a journalist to do that again. Um, why did you burn so many bridges for so many of your colleagues, and how? Well, I, I didn't think I was burning so many bridges. I really just wrote a book that reported what I saw. But it was, I think, in retrospect, I think by De Palma allowing me on a film set, it was really like inviting somebody into the inner sanctum of your family and letting somebody write down every grotesque thing you say and do to each other and the absurdity that comes up that usually is not part of the press. But also, I think what I tried to do in the book was just to show the aspect of the work, most of which is incredibly unglamorous. But a lot of it was inadvertently funny and crazy, like any workplace. And so I think um, the reason nobody ever let it turn, I, I probably wouldn't have been let on either, except to Palma just let me. And the first part of filming took place in New York. And by the time the film moved out to L.A., I was so embedded that the studio had no choice. Um, they just didn't want the, the truth to be told, even though the truth, in my opinion, is not that damning. It's just interesting. I agree. And did, uh, was Brian upset by the book at, at the end of the day? And if so, what, what bothered no. him? Was it his personal relations um, with his various lovers that was the problem, or was it something about the work, it's about his uh, professional work? Neither. I mean, Brian De Palma has been unbelievable about this book from the get-go. He's even after the movie bombed, and he could have closed the door on me because I still needed to talk to him because I was the movie was out and over, and I was just starting to write my book. And he never flinched. I mean, he went into kind of hibernation for a few weeks after the movie was so lacerated, you know, just so destroyed by the press. But then he continued to talk to me after the book came out. He has spoken of it in very positive terms on the Charlie Rose show and on uh, in the, there was a documentary that came out about De Palma five years ago. Um, so he felt that it was accurate and he felt he stood by his decision to let me in, in basically. One last question. Um, you know, when your book ends, it sort of ends with it doing very poorly at the box office. And bad poorly meant like it, it had revenues around $15 million out of a budget of around 40 or something. Um, and so it was a money loser. But um, when the producers, uh, the, when Warner Brothers or uh, when Miss Fisher was analyzing it before it got to the theater, uh, she thought it was a masterpiece and had the potential to be uh, for greatness. 
did they, do you know, did they ever have like a, a post-mortem to evaluate what went wrong and, and what they missed that the, uh, the public didn't like? Yes. And I think what they concluded, and I think they were right, is that they completely underestimated the power of the, of the criti critics at that point. I mean, it's really different now. A movie comes out and individual critics at newspapers on TV really don't matter that much because people look online, they can, they can get many more voices weighing in on a movie. But, you know, 30 years ago, the critical establishment were made up primarily of people who were fans of Tom Wolfe's book. He was a fellow journalist who had you know, written this novel that had become sort of lauded as, as this brilliant takedown, which it was, of the 1980s. And people were, they really looked at the movie as though it was a personal affront to them. I have rarely seen so many really terrible reviews. Unbelievable. All right, David and Julie, thank you. Uh, we're going to move on now to consumer behavior. My co-host will be Todd Benson. Our first speaker is Michael Duda. Michael is a managing partner at Bullish, and he will discuss the upcoming golden era for new consumer brands. Mike, please go ahead. Hey, hey come back to follow. So let's uh, that's some heady stuff. So anyway, yes, consumer. Um, and consumer my view of it comes from this weird platypus background of investing in early stage consumer companies for 11 years and also being a marketer for 20 years too. Um, and the, the reason why I have a chip on the shoulder is that consumer is a big part of our economy. It's 70% of our GDP, which is up. I mean, from the year that Netscape IPO, I think in the mid nineties was 66%. Yet in my world, only 2.7% of early stage dollars goes to funding. It's just this weird area. And so, we, we, we as a nation, as investors, like laud technology. I think the top five, uh, you know, 20% of the S&P 500 is made up by people named Microsoft and Facebook and Amazon and, and Alphabet and Apple um, on there. And, and you know, when we talk to LPs or people, it's like, well, haven't we thought of everything in consumer? What's, what's out there? Consumers can be boring. And, and I, I just want to go why we think we're in a golden age um, of what's going to in consumer brands. So first, let me, let me give you my... Um, our viewpoint, how we look at this stuff. Um, we study the demand side of the equation, like what consumers are really doing and acting. We spend about eight to 10,000 hours in the field each year. Um, 2020 was a little bit different field-wise than, than past years, but we really look at, at stuff, and from an investment perspective, we're looking to fund crazy new things that have product culture fit. Not traditional product market fit, or things that get into TAM, total addressable market, and all these three-letter acronyms, but, um, so we study things that are going on in culture, which are, are softer, and, and maybe the reason why a lot of investors aren't, uh, aren't as keen on it uh, early. So I'm going to go over today about like three things going on in, in culture that we think are going to be talents behind some of the other things. But first, taking a look um, before I get to culture is that we look at three concentric circles, technological, industrial, and cultural, which I'll spend the most time on. Technological, the most obvious statement I can make is the iPhone is only 12 or 13 years old. It's been in our pockets, and, and not till then, we didn't really have the internet in our pocket. It was all about emails and texts and that stuff. And so we are still just using these things um, in the way that we're probably meant to be uh, just now for transactions, for commerce. But with it, it's also come like a new set of expectations, which I'll get into a little bit. On the industrial side, quite blankly, it's like if something's been around for 12 or 13 years, it's a new shiny toy. 
and you're a business that's been around for 50 or 60 or 100, good luck trying to build, trying to like uh, recalibrate your abilities to take in that technological innovation in, in terms of helping, helping better serve the customer. Um, ever tried turning around an aircraft carrier versus a jet ski? Aircraft carriers are tough. And then culture. So this is the, the main point we'll get into with some, some stories that are hopefully somewhat informative. Um, there are three destructions going on right now that, uh, well, that's a negative thing, we think is going to um, aid and abet the future consumer brands that we're loving over the next couple of years. The first is authority. There's been just a destruction of authority, and the alternative is that people are finding new forms of authority through activity. We've gone from a country that's respected, maybe in worship authority, to one that's growing mistrust. Um, the mass mentality has become more trusted in traditional voices. And we see this in so many different ways. I mean, we just had Julian. Movies. I think a good member of this audience, and, and Larry, you're in Chicago, like Cisco and Ebert used to decide for a lot of people, like, should I go see this movie or not? Now, let's go see what Rotten Tomatoes says. Or, and that's if you just didn't click what Netflix recommends for you. Um, the tomato meter audience score, like the masses are still there. Doctors. Uh, I grew up in an area where advertising was four out of five doctors agree or nine out of ten dentists agree. That's no longer the case, and for so many different reasons, besides HMOs and that side of it. Now we want things faster. And if we can't get into a doctor's office or a specialist for weeks, all of a sudden WebMD and Google is determining if my kid has a fever or the flu or something else. And that's on the rise of things like ZocDoc, which doesn't reward people for, like, like find the best doctors. Find those you can go see ASAP. Um, and then this one's a little bit controversial, religion. I grew up in the 70s as an Irish Catholic up in Syracuse, New York. In the 70s, 68 to 70% of people had a great deal of confidence in organized religion, went to church every Sunday or synagogue on, on Saturdays on that side. By 2015, that number was in the low 40s. And for various reasons in there, either like the Catholic Church had its issues or otherwise, but but one of the reasons that we found that people go to church or synagogue was like there's a sense of ritual. There's a sense of a community. Uh, there's a sense of spiritualness. Guess what was taking that place? Soul Cycle, CrossFit, and Peloton. In fact, Peloton, which we were the first investor in, as mentioned, we started noticing an uptick in Sunday morning, like 7 a.m. To, to noon, was the fastest growing segment of, of users on that side of it, and geared up programming to that effect. So to this day, like, like Sundays with Love, which is almost a, I won't say religious experience, but very communal and spiritual, the groups of people that were coming to those classes, and this is 2016, 2017, wound up being great cohorts that over-index on the brand's evangelism and really helped grow that company. And no idea. So is it just because religion on that side? But those are the, the, the main point is that authority is, is kind of gone by the wayside for the masses. Number two, brand destruction. And this is near and dear to my heart, and I wince as I say it, but brands and consumer loyalty has gone down um, because you want accessibility. A little bit what I mentioned on the doctor's side of the equation. We're time-pressed. There's more work, people working in dual-income families than ever before. There's kids doing more activities. We want to get things done easier as possible. And, and the best example of use of that is personal clinic and GNC, General Nutrition Centers, which has been around since 1935 and for years had been the number one vitamin uh, company in, in the world. As times are changing, and this is in 2017, 2018, GNC said, you know what, we have to supplement our 8,800 stores and let's, let's go on the internet, let's do a test on Amazon. And so we helped them do a test on Amazon and set up a GNC store. And, and this was extremely telling. If you go into, into a GNC location, 
uh, across the country. The gross margin on that sale for GNC is 50, 50%. If you bought something on GNC.com at the time, it was 55%. In the first three or four months of selling on Amazon, the gross margin for an Amazon for a GNC product is 62%, which is scary because basically as much as vitamins and supplements are so healthy, people like, what's the easiest way I can get them? And so the fact that GNC made more money by, by selling on Amazon than it could on a profitability basis because the leases they had to pay in the stores or they didn't have the advanced uh, operational and logistics ability is just was stunning. Um, we wound up not working with them anymore and investing in a startup called Carev and, and, and the rest is kind of history on that side. Um, scale destruction. That's the third. And the, the scale destruction, what does that mean? It's like empathy. And again, that's one of those warm, squishy things that is a marker that we see that uh, it's tough for investors. And this really defined the period of 2000 to, 2010 to 2014. Um, scale used to be a natural moat in helping the market share leaders. Um, and the things that can help achieve that scale can also blind a company to not change for the times. Let's take Gillette, for instance. Gillette in 2010 uh, was literally a Harvard Business School case study. It was 9% of P&G's revenue and something like 34% of their profits. They had 81% market share. And if you look at their historical marketing, um, very 1980s, very a best a man can get, featuring six two, beautiful 6220 pound models just achieving their all. Well, in an era of metrosexualism and, and guys not shaving every day, it's just they, they stayed toned up. And so when companies like, and plus with the pricing ramifications, when companies like Dollar Shave Club and Harry's came along, um, it ate into that market share quite a bit. And with the launch of Harry's, which actually became a giftable proposition, the fact that Larry's father-in-law gifted him a Harry's set just spoke to it. And when we launched, we incubated and invested in Harry's. First of all, the name is Harry's. Talk about empathy. It's just like, you don't have to shave every day, we get it. Our, our, literally, our, our, our logo was a woolly mammoth on that side. So a lot of these companies that have market share that have been in the business for a long time, just like their scale prevents them from seeing what's new. So from a brand level, if you don't have a great brand that has a different experience, you can get Amazon. From an authority level, which is there's different things going on that are just causing different behaviors that TAM can't necessarily capture. So, um, so I've said some things and given some personal examples. So what categories do we think could be in charge of leading this golden era in consumer with new brands going up? It, it's a variety. And some will sound simple and some will sound maybe like uh, hilarious, but uh, here goes. Skincare and lawn products. Go back to the 2000s when this weird, some said hippie company called Whole Foods started emerging out of, of Austin, Texas. Um, they champion organic, non-GMO foods and form consumers and become, consumers would be becoming more woke to what they put in their bodies. They did such a good job that by 2014, 2015, Costco was the number one selling leader in terms of organic food. Now let's apply that to skincare. The fact of the matter is the things that we put on our skin get absorbed into our bloodstream quicker than what we eat. And women, who are much better consumers than, than someone like myself who's done XY chromosome, women put on average 12 different products of about 168 chemicals each on their body each day. And so what we're seeing now is a lot of new practice in skincare, not just about sustainability and just not saying for like look your best, but also be your best. Because literally we could be putting poisons on our body each day. Look at the lawn care industry. Scott's had to pay off $10.5 billion worth in lawsuits. Sunday Lawn, which is one of our companies, is two and a half years young, uh, said no to two acquisitions, and now are just being featured in 800 Walmarts across the country. Why? Because it's, good, it's not only doing good for the, the product, not only does good, it's not going to 
when it gets into your skin, it's not going to do bad things as others. So that we think is going to be a big part of what's um, not just Gen Z or younger, it's just we, uh, I'm assuming we have been more of an older mainstream audience like myself in here, we are going to be part of that as well. Baby form. Michael, thank you. Yes. Michael, thank you. Sorry. We'll come back to you in a second in the Q&A. Leslie, why don't you go ahead? Leslie, uh, sure. It works at T-O-B-E-T-D-G. The consumer. Go ahead. Okay. So we intersect with Mike's business at the cultural point. Our other two circles are looking at the consumer and creativity, and we triangulate these to project what the brand consumer dynamic will look like. And I'll tell you a secret. It's in the small movements, the nuances, rather than the big obvious things. So let's call it business Pilates that keeps businesses relevant to the consumer. So we're going to take a speedy look through um, what's coming out of this shared global um, experience that's going to move us into the next stages of consumerism. Some of the things I'm going to say are are going to dovetail right into what Mike just spoke about. So let's start with self-care, where we just came off of skin care. There's a certain autonomy that's grown out of this past year. The consumer has declared their independence. Beauty treatments, fitness routines, even wellness and mental health practices came in-house out of necessity, but they will stay there out of convenience, cost, and capability. So I'm sure you're all familiar with Peloton and Mira as the most obvious examples, but it's all going to level up from there um, to the point where rituals, beauty rituals, and and beauty equipment to do beauty services is going to come in-house. People um, have become very proactive about prevention. So this comfort level with in-home testing, I mean, the amount of testing going on, people are testing all the time, testing, testing, swab up the nose, swab up the nose. Um, Telemedicine, it accelerated, everything accelerated for personalized and protective measures. Businesses like Everly Well offer in-home test kits for everything from food sensitivities to indoor and outdoor allergies. And if vessel urine test strips can give customers all the biofeedback of an in-office test, it looks like it's going to get more integrated. So watch that. People are interested in enriching themselves. The general public has availed themselves of every YouTube tutorial, online class, digital conference that's offered, all in an effort to problem solve, engage on topics of interest, and develop new skill sets. What's the commercial translation there? Brands like Cookware Line, Great Jones, are already talking talking customers through recipes with their 1-800-POT-LINE. And Crate and Barrel's The Frame is similarly supporting the customer post-purchase. So there's a connection between brand and consumer right there. Next, let's look at our surroundings. An unshakable awareness of place and space has emerged. Sanitization is top of mind. A residual concern about cleanliness will not go away. Even with touch and surface theories debunked, you'll have people looking for construction and conditions that feel safer going forward. That means materials with antimicrobial properties like copper and silver, built-in UVC lighting, air and water purification systems in interior designs for home, office, retail, and hospitality. Adaptability is another big issue you're going to want to look at. There is a distinct no-ties vibe settling in. With a rising interest in sort of a metaphorical weightlessness, people want spaces that are organized, efficient, and flexible. Office space by day, living space by night. Lighting that transforms the mood. Organizational systems that give everything a place and encourage a general reduction of stuff so people can easily resituate on the fly. For extra credit in surroundings, elevation is going to be an opportunity. There's a movement toward high design and luxury amenities for those that can afford it. Gym equipment that looks like furniture. Take a look at Pent Fitness for an example. In-closet steamer cabinets like the LG Styler for well-preserved garments. Stealth 
um, home entertainment systems and private networks with faster connectivity are all going to be interesting to the consumer. When we look at our social life, there's quite a bit of social dust, uh, rust that needs to be shaken off. Most importantly, people want to connect again. Um, they're ready to get off Zoom. Um, I mean, I personally do not want to go to a meeting that I am attending as well. I can't stand looking at my face anymore. Um, so to build pr professional and personal relationships in person again is going to be something interesting. And even if it's not in person, apps like Clubhouse are getting us out of pro our professional echo chambers and dating pl platforms like Chat First app, Taffy, and personality matching app, Birdie, prioritize personality over physical appearance. Also, asterisk, we really believe uh, over at Toby TDG that a lot of people are going to be looking to make up for lost time in the Department of Sex and anything related to that. Um, they're also looking forward to get out and about, getting out and about, and they're interested in returning to their favorite spots as well as box ticking some new hot spots. So surroundings that are buzzy and energized, fantastical in decor, that'll give people the stimulation they've been missing. Um, Chifa in LA is an interior, um, like just wonder wall in, in LA with um, a new restaurant that's going to be opening. It looks like it'll be poised for success because it'll have that stimulation. And of course, travel plans are being dreamt up. People's newfound love of the outdoors will influence their trip itineraries and the hospitality business. Booking agency G Adventures travel polls found that most sought-after excursions are small groups, active inclined, outdoor immersed, so hiking in Greenland, exploring volcanoes of Sicily. Even new model multi-use properties like Flamingo Estate in LA are built into and engaged with their surrounding environments. That'll be key. Lastly, let's look at style. There has been a complete relief of standards changing the shopper's motivations. Express yourself permission has been granted. Staying on top of trends is a, a much lower priority for the consumer now. Under the conditions of the past year, the average shopper has made a habit of dressing for themselves rather than the fashion cycle. As a result, personal style gets more firepower here, especially where kids are concerned. Where they don't have to get dressed in their uniforms or any sort of dress code for school, parents are fine with them sort of putting themselves together however they feel. So a real, like, picked it up off the floor, pile it on aesthetic is coming about. Flex culture is slowing. There's a post-capitalism movement underway, encouraging a reduction in shopping and amassing products. Discussions of flex and drop culture leading to financial ruin and the distortion of values is calling for a reset. Investing in quality products of good value and lasting relevance is a, the prescribed antidote. Vice article, How to Stop Shopping at Amazon, has been making the rounds and making the point. Value backing is a personal statement. The increasingly prevailing sentiment is that if you're going to buy, buy with a conscience. More and more tools and information from carbon calculating to production comparisons are giving the customer the data they want to make decisions they can live with, like Chipotle's footprint calculator that lets the eater choose ingredients based on impact. All of this is just scratching the, in the surface of our immediate re-entry into the world. The topics can translate in this format without you know, further illustration or information, and that's the ones that I chose, but we're already going down the rabbit hole on the many signs and signals of the further reaching. Um, so thanks for listening. Terrific. Well, Great. Thank you. Thank you, Leslie. And this is Todd Benson. Uh, my, so my first question for the two of you, and you're going to be kind of you know, terrific sort of kind of turf divorce at 78 RPM. It's what do you think? What do you think the impact of the new stimulus check is going to be? And do you think that basically that where is that going to get spent? Uh, and you know, how much of it is you know, going to be spent on products and things versus you know experiences versus saved? 
And how's that um, all kind of thinking to your thinking? Being connected to the the retail industry directly, we definitely see a spike in sales when the checks come out. So we know that people are waiting for the checks to do some shopping that they want to, they want to do or have to do. Um, so in terms of shopping, it is it definitely indicates a spike. A younger generation, in my opinion, is doing more saving than older generations used to do. So I think that'll be interesting. And I think you know we've seen recently the younger generation also kind of got getting the investing bug and maybe start trying to turn their money into money. Um, so those would sort of be my like quick takeaways on that. <laughs> like GameStop being termed, term, which yeah. is a kind of a, a prior uh, kind of kind of uh, topic of of Larry's show. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, so what what about yeah, then? Uh, actually, that you know, kind of you you know um, yes. Oh no, sorry. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I was going to say basically. So you kind of one area one area that neither of you sort of kind of touched on, but is a big area in terms of value and in terms of you know, kind of products and things like that, has been all, all around you know kind of financial services. Um, you know, and if you if you thought about things like you know, kind of PayPal having a bigger market cap than not only Goldman or Citi, but Goldman and Citi put together, I'm sort of curious about you know kind of you know kind of just like all the innovation there and Robinhood being one sort of example. You just sort of kind of touched on it. But if there are other th if there are other things in that space that are interesting to watch. Um, yeah, picking up picking up what was just um, this Mike Pluto just said. We're not a nation of savers. You know, on that book, kind of dropping off the where people are spending their stimulus checks. Like Bob's Discount Furniture sells more couches right after people get their refunds back from the IRS. So that's going to continue. And when we're so flush with capital, like there's more money in the private markets than ever, the stock market is going up. It's just people aren't saving on that side of it. You know, when we've looked at this from an, from an investment perspective, it's just, uh, I mean, Robinhood just, I think, filed their IPO. We're, we're going to see more and more use cases that, um, what we saw with Reddit and GameStop, it could become more like the official bar bet is the way people are going to save the future. Um, sports betting, as that becomes actually more prevalent on a state-by-state -state basis, that's going to be more. So it's like I'd love to say something like there's going to be a new credit card that comes out or people are going to learn to save, but uh, you know, consumers are going to keep being their rational beats they are from what, from what we see. What's your guys' sense of basically when people are going back to work? Meaning, you know, when's it going to be Ali Ali income free and people back in the office? Uh, you know, uh, I, I have speak. a very contrary opinion to most people on that. Yeah, good. Yeah, I don't, I don't understand the we're never going to go back to work full time. I don't understand the we're going to go only a couple of days a week. Um, I think that maybe that's how it starts, but it's like an A B weekend in a share house. Like, what if there's a friend on the other weekend? Like, do you never get to see them? What if there's someone you have to work with on the other day? Um, I think what will happen is that people will eventually, like what used to be a 40-hour week week, work week was, or supposed to be a 40-hour work week before this was always a 60-hour work week. I think that it'll just creep, there'll be creep, and it'll creep back, you know, once. It'll, it'll be all herky-jerky when it starts, but then I think it just creeps back to regular. I mean, and there might be flexibility and and... Op options of, of, of like the platforms and the ways that, that people work. But I think it's, we got to get back to work. And my big question if, is, if we don't, like, what is everybody doing? Yeah. So Mike, would Let's you agree with that? I'm a fellow contrarian along with Leslie. It's just, uh, I think the tech firms got out ahead, out ahead of it saying like, oh, we're going to be working from home until like 2022 or permanent. And those are places that you have a lot of engineers who put on headphones and who don't talk to people on a daily basis. Uh, Humans are a very social species. 
we want to be together. We want to go to a Kansas City Chiefs game and hug somebody next to us after Mahomes scores a touchdown. And in work, that's going to be the same thing. There's a lot of businesses that require like some human capital. Now, will it be five out of five days a week? Will business travel go in the same way? No, but when we're, we're looking at 90 million vaccinations um, distributed so far, we're looking for like an opening up. It's just like people are returning to the office. A absolutely. It's just, it doesn't have to be the way it was before, but it's just people look for absolute. So the, the whole work from home is, is uh, I, I sense we're going to have a, a narrative shift come actually in the next 60 days. Because I can see I, people going so by, like, early soon. I also think that people are going to go old school with like entertaining and traveling and trade events. I have this weird like hunch that people are going to be like, you know what? I'd love to take a client out to dinner again. I'd love to go to a trade show and go on a boondoggle. I think people are going to want to do that again, and I think it's going to make business boom. Don't quote, don't so, quote so me. So, Lincoln, if you look at the stock market, right, you'd see you've got a Home Depot stock price up and Wayfair and Restoration Hardware and all those because we've kind of, kind of invested in home and even things like uh, Lululemon because of athleisure and you know, kind of, you know, living, my, kind of living, in, living in my sweats. Your, your view, basically, you know, kind of you, you'd be long, you know, kind of, you'd be long, you'd be buying, uh, you know, kind of men's dress shoes. Uh, and, um, you know, I would not be buying dress. I would not be buying men's dress shoes. <laughs> I don't think people are going. I don't. Once you get comfortable, you're not going to get uncomfortable. I mean, our. I do not think that people are going to be getting formally formally dressed. I think people are going to have style and personal style, and they're going to express themselves, and they're going to look great, and they're going to want to buy clothes again. But I think like it's like you have to put the brownie and the brownie and the broccoli. Like no no waistband that doesn't have a little stretch in it is going to be useful to anybody. No shoe that doesn't have some comfort, no shoe that doesn't have some comfort built into it is going to be useful to anybody. But, but I, I do, I think the, it's kind of splitting hairs here, but, but um, anything that you wouldn't Instagram about in 2020 will become more prolific coming up. So denim sales were way down last year, whereas the Viore's and the Mac Weldon's stick to me well, the Lululemon, the Athletes. Like, if you don't go out, people aren't showcasing them on that same way, shape, or form. So as social beasts, we think there's going to be an uptick in, like, nicer men's apparel and that side of it. Guess what we're, we're learning is, like, the destruction of what Mastige used to be is well underway um, on that side of it. So what luxury looks like is going to change, and that could be by experiences more than apparel. But I think apparel will go up in in, in the non-sweatpant category um, overall. But it's just, like, um, looking good. But with compromise, to I think yeah. point is is way under the gun. I think I I agree totally. It's going to be style, but it's going to be like a lot of technology built in to make it comfortable and make all sorts of products do double duty. You know, I think that it's I think it's going to be all about like ingenuity in terms of how you construct things and how you make them look amazing but feel great. I have, it's Larry Bernstein. I have a question for Michael. Yes. Michael, you mentioned uh, the benefit of immediacy uh, as part of the consumer experience. Uh, the example you gave was, um, I can't wait for my doctor for the answer. I'll go grab WebMD or go to ZocDoc. I want my answer now. And when I look at the success of Amazon and the two-day delivery uh, and the, the amazing improvements in logistics uh, of e-commerce, um, What's the best way to profit from this consumer desire for immediacy? 
Ooh, the best way to do it is just to know what, like, whatever corner of the universe you're attacking to fill that consumer need. It's just like, what's being done now? How can I do it better than everybody else and go towards it? Um, you know, the one area, and, and listen, we love Amazon. Amazon, I think, is 40 to 45% of all e-commerce. We are going to see a new era of, like, customization and personalization. Um, Functional Beauty is one of our companies, 54 trillion combinations of shampoo and conditioner. Guess what? Delivered to your door in four or five days. You know what's going to help that business? They're going into Target. Like, so these old school, like, e-commerce is not going to kill, like, retail. E-commerce helps kill bad retail. So you're going to see companies like Walmart and CVS are doing interesting things to like, embrace startup DPC brands that we hadn't seen in the past five or six years that Target's got a lot of credit for. So part of it is embracing old school game. If I run out of something, I want to be able to go to the store and get it. But it's got to be customized to give me options. And, and so many times we look at such absolutes. DTC, direct-to-consumer is one channel in economics. It, there should be successful brands will have multiple areas to serve that customer where she needs to be served. Can you expand on uh, the direct-to-consumer movement? Um, you know, Amazon now offers uh, certain companies to effectively advertise on the Amazon platform about themselves. And I think in the long run, um, firms have been had only an indirect relationship with their consumer. Uh, as you mentioned, like Gillette before, Michael, um, Gillette really doesn't, I've been a Gillette user now for 30 or 40 years, uh, though I've never had a relationship directly with Procter & Gamble. How can, how can Gillette benefit by finding a, a method of having a direct relationship? How can they boost sales, learn more quickly, and, and kind of make that product cycle so much faster? Either do something with a product cycle. You know, it's interesting about Gillette. Gillette, I'll say, that is the best shave you can get from a technological basis. They spend tons of money in research. Like, Harry's is a great shave at a fair price. You know, but you have to understand what, what, what role do you play in life? Where if I run out of razors, I want them right away. So direct con consumer, on one hand, be fulfillment versus acquisition. Or it could offer up something like new, and I know this could sound bizarre, take a page out of the Supreme or Fashion World, do a special drop. Like do the new eight-blade, you know, the Ocho from Gillette to a thousand people that most embody like how a man can get to be their best on that side of it. Make it something like newsworthy or remarkable on, on that side of it. Um, but not everything was meant to be just purely DTC. But, um, you know, it's tough for P&G. P&G has served their, their customers who've been the Albertsons, the Walmarts, and the Amazons for years. Now to do direct consumers is a different kind of muscle. Um, but they might offer it to, to be honest with you, it's like there's a lot of under-market under -market groups like African-Americans haven't been directly um, uh, advertised to, and they bought a company, Walker & Co. So they could be doing something to, to very targeted audience as well, too. All right. Um, this is the part of the show where we end on a note of optimism. Um, historically with COVID, um, we've had – you know, some pretty bad experiences and a lot of pessimism in our life, but things are starting to turn around. Vaccines are getting out there. Um, and so I like to end with each speaker with a note of optimism. I'm going to go in reverse order. Leslie, why don't I start with you? What are you optimistic about? Oh, you know what? I'm optimistic about a lot. I think that just the, the re-entry and the re-emergence into the world after this is 
I think people are looking to have fun and and enjoy themselves and see each other and I think there's going to be a lot. I think I think it's going to be a creative boom. I think there's going to be a lot of creativity, a lot of sort of pent up creativity that's going to come out. I think there's going to be a lot of activity that's going to come out and I just I think there's going to be a lot of personality coming out. Um so I feel like it's it's going to be really exciting when things start to get back to normal and I think um I think they're going to unwind quickly when they do. Thank you. Michael? Amen, hallelujah. For everything that 2020 was in terms of stress, political strife, social strife, economic strife, we've never seen anything like April of 2020 before. Um, And what is still currently going on, like Zoom fatigue is real. The biggest areas where Zoom fatigue is playing in in is places like New Hampshire, Maryland, Massachusetts, Vermont, and Connecticut. And so for all the things we're seeing, like are they being responsible in Miami and those things, like we are on the doorstep that is like a healthy amount of people have been vaccinated and going back to what I said earlier, humans are social creatures. There's going to be a lot of optimism, a lot of like flapper-like 1920s, like celebration in 2021. And, and um, a positive spirit tends to like have a ripple effect on a lot of different things. So I think it's a great time to be, of course, bullish. I'm going to blindside my, uh, my co-host, Todd Benson. Todd, what are you optimistic about? I think I'm most optimistic about kids going back to school right now. I think that you know, we've had a kind of particularly tough year for, for moms in particular and families and kids and learning and all those sorts of things and just sort of getting everybody back into a routine, getting back in terms of being kind of learning and making sure that we don't lose a generation, particularly among some of our most kind of, you know, kind of vulnerable members of society. So I'm very happy about kids getting back to school. Thanks, Todd. Julie Solomon, what are you optimistic about? So I think that one's easy. I'm really optimistic about the potential in young people today. They helped turn the tide of the last election. They're hyper-conscious about race and the environment and gender identity. You know, sure, they're too unforgiving at times, but that's part of their job. They're demanding a better world, and they're doing the work it takes to make that happen. And I think that's exciting. Thanks, Julie. David? Um, I think about the culture of New York City, and I think about how the subways um, have in some ways never been cleaner. Um, I, I don't think that's going to go away, um, or I hope that's not going to go away. Um, I think outdoor dining in New York City is here to stay, um, and we are moving uh, from a car-centric, uh, from, a, a, from a car-centric city to an even more, uh, even more pedestrian uh, friendly city than uh, than than in the past, um, and then as uh, the, as the dad of a 14 year old, I too am looking forward to kids going back to school. I think it's going to be great for kids, and I think it's going to be great for parents. Wonderful, Christine Rosen. What are you optimistic about? Well, um, I'll, I'll be a slight skunk at the garden party and say I'm also a parent of two 14-year-olds, and I'm not, I've been optimistic at watching parents organize to get the schools to reopen because where I am, there's no plan yet for them to do that. So I've actually been really impressed with the kind of just grassroots organizing that a lot of parents of public school students, of which I am one, um, have ended up doing in order to put pressure on our officials to, to really listen to what we're saying and what our kids need. So that's optimistic. But my larger... My, my larger optimism actually comes out of the fact that, you know, we've been talking a little bit about Zoom fatigue, but if we can emerge from this period of isolation and lockdown 
with a greater appreciation of the of the joy and um, necessity of face-to-face -face human interaction, I think that'll be a really good thing for everyone, regardless of their station in life, because as, as several of you have mentioned, um, we're social creatures and we've really been craving that and we need it. And I think it will contribute to civility and happiness in general when we can return to return to that. Wonderful. Ernie Freeberg. Well, I'll follow up on that. I, as a, somebody who is working uh, in higher education, we have spent years uh, being told by the administration that, that students really need to learn online, that we need to all learn to do that. This experience of the past year has uh, convinced many students that they really want that personal interaction on campus. And I think that's, that's a good thing for, uh, at least for those of us who are interested in the liberal arts possibilities. Obviously, the technology opens up uh, a wider range of access for people, and that's great too, uh, but people are clamoring to get back on campus and it's it's gonna be a good fall next year. Patrick? I'm optimistic about the intellectual vitality of the United States, personified by the success of what happens next. It's been going on for nearly a year now, and it's consistently maintained a, a very high level of civility and a very high level of intellectual curiosity and wonderful, clear explanations from people in a marvelously diverse set of disciplines. So kudos to you, Larry, for doing it, and, uh, and, for, and for everyone who's participated in the show. They've made it the most interesting intellectual experience of the last year. That is very kind. Thank you, Patrick. Um, all right, that ends today's show, but I wanted to plug next week's show. Uh, our speakers will be Adams, Admiral James Stavridis of the U.S. Navy. He was the former Supreme Allied Commander of NATO and the former Dean of the Fletcher School of Law. Uh, this week he'll be announcing, uh, releasing his new book called 2034, A Novel of the Next World War. So I'm excited to have the Admiral. Uh, he'll be followed by Paul Offit. Uh, he runs vaccine education at the University of Pennsylvania Medical School. And then we have Robert Parlberg. Robert is a professor of political science at Wellesley and also at Harvard in their sustainability science program. He's got a book called Resetting the Table, Straight Talk About Food. Uh, that's followed by Yale Law Professor Patrick Weil. He'll be discussing what citizenship means in a modern world. And he has a book on how to be French, nationality in the making since 1789. And then we end with an Emory English professor by the name of Mark Bauerlein. And Mark has his book, The Dumbest Generation. And I'll be asking him if the next generation of young people will be the dumbest ever. With that, uh, taking the contrary of the optimism points, um, that ends today's call. I'd like to thank our speakers and my co-hosts for their participation and always to our listeners for listening in. Uh, with that, that ends today's program. You may hang up now. Thanks again for joining. Bye-bye.